The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1802, he was born into an incredible French family. His name was Alexandre Dumas, and he went on to become one of the most successful journalists and playwrights and authors in France, eventually coming to write 100,000 pages of materials. Today, he is remembered for his swashbuckling novel, The Three Musketeers, which might be the greatest and most successful historical adventure novel ever written. And perhaps its greatest rival for that crown is the book The County Monte Cristo, which was not only also written by Alexandre Dumas, but it was started in the same year, 1844. He finished serializing one book in July and started serializing the next classic in August. Incredible. How did this unlikely man of a mixed-race background become one of France's greatest authors? For that, we need to look closely at his family, because for all the dashing characters that Dumas created for the page, there was one character in his life who had a rise and fall and rise and fall in fortunes as astonishing as any literary creation. His name was Thomas Alexander Dumas, known as the Black Count, the son of a slave who became a four-star general in Napoleon's army. He was Alexander the author's father. The story of Alexander Dumas, his works, and the Black Count who inspired them in spirit, today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join me today. This is a fun story. Fun and inspiring, too. Good guys and bad guys, adventure, daring do, swashbuckling. Have you ever wondered where that word comes from, swashbuckling? We know it as an adventurer, someone who goes running across the screen or the stage or the page, jumping into action, fearless and brave, and probably carrying a sword, right? Swinging from chandeliers. We don't call a brave boxer a swashbuckler. We don't say a a daring football player or a soldier is a swashbuckler. It's reserved for someone with a sword on their belt. And that fits the history of the word, mostly. It was originally a little more pejorative, a blowhard, noisy, a braggart, someone boastful. That was what swash stood for. And a buckler was a small round shield. So a swashbuckler was someone who would make a sound by thrusting his sword at your shield, swashing the buckler, so to speak, making a noise, being aggressive. The word was handed down through the centuries until we have it today as a whole genre of films and stories. The Pirates of the Caribbean are swashbuckling tales. And of course, our two examples today The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, maybe the two greatest adventure stories ever written. A lot of bucklers to be swashed before we're finished today. But we also have a real-life adventure to talk about. Our writer had a father, and the father had one of the most incredible lives you could imagine. His father sold him into slavery and then bought him back. And from this beginning, the man rose through gallantry and guts and talent and dashing ability to become a rival to Napoleon, the highest-ranked general in any army, I'm sorry, the highest-ranked black general in any white army, until Colin Powell came along. That's one account of it anyway. There's some disputes about who might have been higher. 
But that's our story today. Three stories, really. The Father, the Musketeers, and the Count. And a fourth story, if you count Alexander's own life, which we'll also cover. So we'll get right to it. We'll take a quick break, then hear a few listener emails. Oh, oh excuse me. See the door. My goodness. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. I'm here to ask you... Now, now stop! Sorry, that's my dog, Spot. His mm. favorite dog walker hasn't shown up yet, mm. and he's refusing to... Out! Out, you damned Spot! He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favorite dog walker. What happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. Oh. I can't remember why. Something about a dagger. That's anyway, funny, our desperate and sweaty sure. man, Jack Wilson, is going to procure a new dog walker. But he... Spot! If you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. Ahem. Won't you help Mr. Wilson secure a few funds? Spot and I shall be ever so grateful. Hmm. Now there is someone whose bad side you do not want to be on. Thank you, Lady Macbeth, you dark-hearted woman. You heard us going on about these ambitious men and just couldn't resist, could you? Had to join us with all your puns, all your references. How many of those did you get, listener? Anyway... Lady Macbeth, you would have been a good figure in these books, full of ambition and plotting and cunning and evil. Actually, there is such a woman in the books like you, Milady, one of literature's great villainesses. She's in your league, Lady Macbeth, but thank you for joining us today. Nevertheless, I feel the storm clouds and the cold Scottish wind passing right through my flesh, making me sit up a little straighter in my chair. Thank you for reminding us of how listeners can help support the history of literature by heading over to patreon.com slash literature and signing up for a small monthly donation, or by traveling to historyofliterature.com slash shop for a one-time donation known as a virtual coffee. You know, if this isn't the best time for you to commit, I totally understand. Please enjoy the show anyway. It's free. Or... If you'd rather just click the five-star button or write a little review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, that's great, too. I truly do appreciate it. This week, we're thanking new patrons Joshua, Paul, Susanna, Michael, Mary, and Nick. Thank you all very much for your support. Okay, quick break, then emails, then the swashbuckling list of all the swashbucklers, Alexander Dumas. Let's make it awful, awful Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. That's three inseparables, Rod Stewart, Brian Adams, and Sting, who for some reason Rod Stewart always called String, singing a song for one of the many Three Musketeers movies that there have been. The impact of Dumas on film and popular culture is a little hard to get your mind around. There have been at least a dozen movies based on the Three Musketeers, including a Disney animated version. And of course, the Musketeers was the inspiration for the name Mouseketeers which was a popular show. No, those little mouseketeers weren't running around carrying swords and so on, but the spirit is kind of there. They are together. They are in an adventure together, and they are all for one and one for all. Friends who have each other's backs. That's the great spirit of the musketeers. There's something very, very appealing about that, knowing that you might be facing insuperable odds, but you're not alone. Okay, speaking of not alone, here's an email from Drew a listener in France. We're building up to a big email today, folks. Let me warn you in advance. Drew's is an appetizer, and there is a feast on its way. Subject, hello and thanks. Hi, Jack. I live in Paris, France, and I'm a longtime fan of the pod. Rather ironically, being an expat in the City of Lights, I spent most of my life up until my early 30s taking only a superficial interest in literature. I hadn't even read A Movable Feast. (laughs) Love that. In the past few years, I've developed a deeper interest in true literature. This has been partly to escape the monotony of working life and sometimes parenting, and partly to reconnect with literary-minded relatives around the world. My thanks to you and Mike for your breezy, light-hearted commentary, which has inspired me to continue reading and keep the fires of my imagination burning. It has been a busy lockdown for me, having read Herzog, Invisible Man, The Face of War, Slaughterhouse-Five, and, yes, Magic Mountain. Inspired by the Tolstoy and Anna K. Together movements, I'm now embarking on a slow ascent of Ulysses, 10 pages a day, which started on Bloomsday this year. Lastly, I love the Battle Royales. I know you must have a pipeline of topics stretching to eternity, but may I add to it New Zealand versus Australia? A trans-Tasman literary showdown could feature the likes of Catherine Mansfield, Janet Frame, Eleanor Kelton, Catton, Witty Elimira, some of these I don't know, in the black and white corner against the likes of Peter Carey, Tim Winton, and Richard Flanagan in the green and gold corner. Could the Aussies even claim Coetza? As a Kiwi, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Keep up the incredibly good work, chaps. And as we say in NZ, Kiakaha, Maori for stay strong. Ciao, Drew. Wow. Thank you very much, Drew. I'm so glad you've been enjoying the show. I do have a long pipeline of topics, but I do kind of like the idea of 
New Zealand versus Australia. What a battle that would be. Catherine Mansfield might be a little tough to beat. She's so good. She's been on the list forever for an episode, but we will see. I've also had Australian literature on the list for a long time. I'm trying, people. I'm trying. I will try to get to everything. My goodness. Persian literature. Poor Persian literature has been waiting for years. And then, okay. Here we come to our email of the day. Let me give you a little background for this. Some of you right, might remember the email I got from my Brazilian friend. I've never met her, but she wrote me an email, and it just said in the subject line, Brazilian friend, which just struck me as awesome. I haven't made a lot of money doing this podcast over these past five years. Frankly, it probably would have been better if I'd gotten an extra job at a fast food restaurant financially, which I hate to even think about. But I'm doing it for love. Well, for money, too, but that's more aspirational than actual. I'm doing it for love. Who am I kidding? And that was not aspirational, but it turned out to be actual, if that makes sense. I didn't start this to make friends, is what I'm saying. But that's kind of how it turned out to be in this weird way. I enjoy these emails because I'm constantly astounded by how this little podcast has wormed its way into private little corners all over the world and found some listeners who like the show and who like spending time with my voice in their ears, and then write me the most amazing emails. Here's one from Brazil. Not from our Brazilian friend, but from another Brazilian friend, a new Brazilian friend. We'll call her Brazilian friend number two. I think that's fair. And she writes in here that she doesn't want me to read the email, but we've since had a correspondence, and she's given me the green light. So don't worry about that when you hear it. I would never read an email otherwise. Okay. Deep breath. Here we go. <laughs> Subject. Hello, Jack Wilson. Prescriptum. It is funny how in Portuguese we never use surnames when talking to another person, and that makes your name sound to me as Jack Wilson. Considering the common and shameful habits some Brazilians have of putting such long English names in their children, could be entirely possible. I actually have a friend called Danny Wilson, and I once crossed a Val Disney. There were many explanations I wish I would have given you before saying all of the nonsense above, but I got lost in this intimacy I have with you and you don't have with me, as you speak to me while I just listen. The first being, English is not my mother language, my vocabulary will be poor, and I will sin against your language a lot. <laughs> lot here is in all caps. It's got an upside down exclamation mark before it and a regular exclamation mark after Nice little touch. Second, once someone in an email you read said more or less that he had doubts about writing to you because everyone else writing to you seemed to be auditioning. I agreed so much with him, although I felt he was also auditioning a bit, and I understand him. No one wants to feel humiliated in front of all your poet listeners who have sent you lovely, sophisticated, inspired, cloud-colors-describing emails. Also because he wanted to impress you, because you sort of impress us. That approval we seek for some psychological reason. An area in which I have no expertise, so I will stop babbling. And because it plays to our vanity to be read out loud by a person we respect, making us want to sound good. The last two paragraphs were just to set forth the reasons why I ask you not to read me out loud, although, if I remember well, this other guy... 
I mentioned, has also asked you not to read him on the show, and you did it anyway. And I believe he was secretly hoping for that, and that's the reason why he discreetly auditioned, too, for all of that. In order to be sure I won't be read, I will write you this confusing, with long sentences, crazy order, and invented words email that simply cannot be pronounced nor possibly be an attempt to unconsciously be the literary wizard I am not. <laughs> Let me pause here and say that I think I bungled the explanation of that other guy who had talked about not being mentioned. He said he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends, so he didn't want me to use his last name, but I thought his first name was kind of distinctive, and so I changed that too. That was the deal. He wasn't uh, asking me not to read his email. He was just asking me to remove his last name, and I took out both names. Anyway, back to the email. Why did I decide to put you under such a torture? I do like the show and respect you as a host, so it is not about punishing you. I hated radio talk shows and consequently podcasts since forever, but I love yours. I find it interesting, intelligent, inspiring. But giving you the compliments you deserve was also not what motivated me to write this letter. You once, twice, or one hundred times have said that you like to know what people are doing while they listen to your show. So far, I haven't heard someone listening to you in the same context as me, and I find this curious and worthy of note. I listen to the show doing my rural activities. I even bought myself a wireless earbud. Either I drive the tractor or cut the grass. I really don't know the word for this action, so I attach a descriptive photo. Or I plant some seeds, crop my hearts of palm, clean the, fe clean the fields, feed the dogs, cook. I listen to you on any occasion during the day in which my arms are full, but my head is still seeking knowledge. Sometimes I exchange you for audiobooks, lectures, music, or talking to myself. Why, I think my experience is different. I have noticed that most of your listeners are urban people. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how instruction is connected to urban life and education is so concentrated in the cities? I am an urban person myself. I lived for 16 years in Sao Paulo the biggest city in South America, studied advertising and marketing, then Portuguese and linguistics, but ended up here, a farmer in a small town, growing hearts of palm, trying to make some money, improve the life of my employees, improve the society around me, get close to my neighbors, work in a community, develop the area commercially, this is the poorest area of the state, protect nature and reforest, produce conscientiously, respecting lives, all lives, human and animal. I got this chance to be an idealist because my family had some abandoned land here for sale while I was an underpaid Portuguese teacher, living miserably in a big city I hated. Back then, I was married to a Greek who also hated Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. Is that what you say? Sao Paulo. Brazil. The universe. Probably me. All except his marvelous Greece. Could I blame him? No. So, I came to build my ideal place on earth. Did I manage to do it? Of course not, but I am trying. I feel like a poor Tolstoy, with no souls, no artistic talent, no money, without any interesting society and balls. Is that correct? <laughs> well, it's correct in a way. And, pe <laughs> and people around who can have interesting conversations, enjoy reading, can read, are capable of reading. It is like a failed Dacha in Pavlovsk where Michkin would go to stay alone. 
certainly better for everyone in that book. So you can see why the podcast, online lessons, wine, and alcohol of all kinds are an oasis to me. The city doesn't even have a serious bookstore. Can you believe it? Everyone tells me I am too young to hide here. I am 33, and it can be harsh. Being a woman, bossing men around, being from the city, changing all my life's plans, being alone, and seeing that no one around me is interested in the same subjects as me, trying to change things that people are so comfortable with, like poisoning the fields, deforesting, paying low salaries, wanting to profit no matter the cost. Of course, I learn a lot here. There is a lot a city can't give us, and we don't even notice. Here I feel I am closer to developing myself as a human, an animal, part of nature. I have no phone signal, so I download the episodes before going to bed. I have satellite internet at home. I have to deal with all sorts of wild animals. I might send you some pictures. Deal with different people, a different life, with loneliness, my mind, my time, my wastefulness, nature, Never boredom, curiously. I realized that for the last four years, my life was just like in a pandemic scenario, and not much has changed for me these last months. I have my friends that I see when I go back to the big city. Well, not lately. And we talk on WhatsApp and social networks frequently. Okay, I got a bit lost and oversharing in this last paragraph. Thank you for your show. Congratulations for it. Keep your mind sane. Literature is certainly one of the things that keep me sane, although I am not as heavy a reader as I would wish. And now you have one more Brazilian friend listening to you. Almost forgot. I seriously recommend a Brazilian author. I wish to recommend you many more, called Machado de Assis. I just heard about a recent translation of one of his books to English. I haven't heard all the episodes yet. Maybe you have a Brazilian author somewhere lost in the archive. But if you don't, shame on you. I am joking, but not so much. I wish you and your family well. Carol. Whoa. Carol. (laughs) Carol, Carol, Carol. Wow. What an email. What a life you are living. 33 years old and preferring the life of the farm like Cincinnatus, who gave up all of Rome's power and glory and riches for his small plot of land. I am rooting so hard for you, Carol. Aren't you too, listeners? Don't you want Carol to succeed? In fact, I feel a little unworthy to be part of this endeavor. I'm glad to hear the show helps you, Carol. I'll take your word for it. Certainly we are there for you, to the best of our ability. When you download us, our heart is with you. Keep fighting. Stay strong and stay sane. But I honestly don't really know how to respond to this. This is like the email of the couple who got married after connecting through our show. I'm just overwhelmed. Carol, you are the best. You all are, dear listeners. I love hearing these stories of where you are. Another mental postcard for me to hang on my wall. More friends checking in from around the world. Okay, let's get to Alexander Dumas. One more break, and then let the swashbuckling begin.
Okay, let's go in this order. Let's look at Alexander Dumas and his life, then his two greatest books, and conclude with his father's story and see how that might have inspired Alexander. Just keep in mind when you hear about Alexander that he's living in the shadow of this amazing father who was a bit of a a a swashbuckler himself. Alexander was born in France in 1802 in a small village 50 miles northeast of Paris. His father was a military man, a general, and his mother was the daughter of an innkeeper. In 1806, Alexander's father died. Fortunately for Alexander, he had some connections, and so he wound up in the household of Louis-Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, who later became the last king of France. Alexander was hoping to become a lawyer, and he did find work there, but in the end, the theater was calling. He had made some literary connections, and he tried his hand at writing plays, and before long, he was wildly successful. We don't really watch his plays today, at least I've never seen one. They were sort of the equivalent of popcorn movies or potboiler novels. Lavish productions, historical stories with costumes. You can see what he was learning in the 1820s and 30s as a playwright that would later go straight into his novels. It was colorful history of the French Renaissance, the era of Napoleon, full of themes of adultery and honor and crude plotting and broad humor. The French audiences ate it up. He was writing articles, too, now, in travel books, and pouring out his works at an astonishing rate. An English playwright who was a friend described him as, quote, the most generous, large-hearted being in the world. He also was the most delightfully amusing and egotistical creature on the face of the earth. His tongue was like a windmill. Once set in motion, you never knew when he would stop, especially if the theme was himself, end quote. He had help, too. With some friends, he put together an eight-volume collection devoted to the lives and careers of the most famous criminals in European history. He was putting out literature like a factory cranks out widgets. And then this metaphor became even closer to the truth as he started a production company with teams of writers cranking out stories under his direction. He was earning a ton of money, and he was spending it probably spending even more. He was married and had children, but he also had mistresses, some say as many as 40. In 1846, he had a large country house built outside of Paris, which he called the Chateau de Monte Cristo. Next to it was a building he used as a writer's studio. There were parties and guests and mistresses and children, some legitimate, some not, and more parties and more guests. And two years after building the property, the Chateau de Monte Cristo, He had to sell it. His old boss, the king, was ousted, and the new leader of France, Napoleon III, disapproved of Dumas, and he was, anyway, being hounded by his creditors, so he fled to Belgium. He kept writing from there. Then he went to Russia, where he was treated like a hero because of the popularity of his books and the Francophilia of the Russian aristocracy, and he stayed for two years, writing travel books about Russia. Eventually, he made his way to Italy, where he got excited about the Italian unification movement. He founded a newspaper when he was there, and he became a friend of Garibaldi. 
Throughout his life, he faced discrimination and bigotry due to his mixed-race background. Wealth and success and fame and fortune could not inoculate him from that, but he fought back, famously saying to one bigot, quote, My father was a mulatto, my grandfather was a negro, and my great-grandfather a monkey. You see, sir, my family starts where yours ends. End quote. Oh, and I forgot, before he left France, he was also part of a club that met once a month to take hashish at a hotel in Paris. Other members of the club were Victor Hugo, Charles Baudelaire, and Honoré de Balzac, along with the painter Delacroix. Dumas died in 1870, no longer in literary fashion by then. I think the public was exhausted. He wrote so many big novels that they had probably absorbed all they could. It has taken the sifting of time to boil it down to the handful we still read. The two we're going to talk about, another one which inspired the movie, The Man in the Iron Mask, and perhaps a couple that were about the Robin Hood story, including one called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which also has inspired movies. But it is the two from that miraculous year of 1844 that we're going to talk about now. In the 1840s, he was writing serialized novels, as was the custom of the day. And then in 1844, he came out with the work that launched him into the literary pantheon, The Three Musketeers, serialized in just five months from March to July of 1844. The Three Musketeers is, as we've said, a swashbuckler with heroic, chivalrous men running to the aid of justice. In this story, a young man from Gascony named D'Artagnan is on his way to Paris in 1625, hoping to, to become one of the Musketeers of the Guard, also known as the Musketeers of the King. On his way, he stops at a house where an old man insults D'Artagnan's horse. D'Artagnan demands a duel, but instead he's beaten up with some kitchen equipment, his sword is broken, and his letter of introduction to the commander of the Musketeers is stolen. D'Artagnan vows to get his revenge on the older man. Later, we learn, the older man is Count Rochefort, an agent of Cardinal Richelieu, who is passing orders from Richelieu to his spy, a woman known as Milady. D'Artagnan goes to the headquarters of the Musketeers, but without a letter of introduction, he's refused. Instead, he's sent to an academy for young gentlemen. But before he leaves... D'Artagnan looks out the window and sees Rochefort passing in the street below. He rushes out of the building to confront him. This is the old man who insulted his horse, and D'Artagnan wants his revenge. On his way, he offends three musketeers, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, who all want to duel him. D'Artagnan arranges to fight them all. The three musketeers are all one another's seconds. They are astounded to see that this young Gascon intends to fight intends to duel all of them. They're impressed, but of course, they get ready to duel, as is the custom of the day. And D'Artagnan, as he starts to duel Athos, the cardinal's guards appear and attempt to arrest D'Artagnan and the three musketeers for illegal dueling. Now the four men are fighting together, and although they are outnumbered, they fight off Richelieu's guards. It goes on like this, good guys and bad guys, spies and duels, stolen diamonds and double-crossing and affairs and falling in love with dangerous women. D'Artagnan admires his musketeer brethren, who each have a different personality. Athos was once married to Milady, who is now a femme fatale working for Richelieu. He's never recovered and drinks himself to, well, drinks himself into a stupor to numb his pain. He becomes a father figure to D'Artagnan. Porthos is finely dressed 
a bit of a dandy, not all that smart, but ambitious, in need of money, and strong and capable. Aramis is religious. He loves women, too, sort of the George Harrison of the three. And D'Artagnan, as you can probably tell from the description above, is young, brave, foolhardy, innocent but clever, the country boy who's being initiated into the ways of cutthroat Paris. The politics of the book are interesting. It's the king versus the chief minister, Richelieu, who in real life was one of the more capable and cunning men who helped the king consolidate his power, but who also found ways to increase his own power within this strong monarchical system. By crushing the nobility, Richelieu removes rivals to the king, which helps the king, but it also removes his own rivals, the rivals to himself. For Dumas, the novel fits into a milieu he knew well, thanks to his years of writing and producing theatrical performances, in particular the kind of historical costume dramas that were so popular in his era. They also gave him a way to comment on current society in France, which was itself going through some political upheaval, as the Republicans of post-revolutionary France were still fighting with the monarchists. When the book was serialized, France was actually back in a monarchy. Four years later, the 1848 revolution would establish the Second Republic. D'Artagnan wasn't finished. He returned in two subsequent novels. But it was the next book, which did not feature D'Artagnan, where Dumas reached what I consider to be his peak. Much as I love The Three Musketeers, which has perfect characters, I love The Count of Monte Cristo even more, which has almost a perfect plot. And here we should note that one of the writers helping Dumas was perhaps more than just the term helper would suggest. He was more of a ghost writer or collaborator, and it was he, Auguste Mackay was his name, it was he who put together the plot outline for many of Dumas' works, including this one, The Count of Monte Cristo. This one is also set in the historical past, but it's much more recent. It begins in 1815, just before the Hundred Days period, when Napoleon returned to power after his exile, and it runs through 1839, the period of the Bourbon Restoration or the Bourbon Restoration, whatever you say in French. <laughs> I don't know French, people. Count on me for correct pronunciation in Italian. I'm your man for that. All these French names, I read them and read them and read them and get these pronunciations stuck in my mind, and then I just let it fly. There's no other way to do it. Even if I look it up, I'll forget or I'll mispronounce it. It's got to be the way that it sounds in my head. My apologies to any sensitive listeners with sensitive French ears. Or actually, my experience has been French listeners actually don't care that much. It's the people who know French, who learned French, who are most offended. It's like the a friend of mine, when we were in Italy, and she, well, never mind. You know who I'm talking about. The one who talked about Barcelona. Ah, where were we? The book that runs through 1839, The Count of Monte Cristo, runs through 1839, the period of the Restoration, and through the reign of Louis-Philippe, who, as you may remember, was Dumas' old patron. It's a story of revenge, but also one of justice, hope, and despair, imprisonment, and fortune, spirituality, mercy, forgiveness. It tells the story of Edmund Dantes, Dantes, who is wrongfully imprisoned by three men, each with different motives. While in prison, the island fortress Chateau Diff, he lives for years in despair until an old, 
religious man tunnels into his cell. He teaches Edmund many things, mathematics, science, culture, and so on, and helps him deduce whose treachery has landed him in jail. Now there are three men Edmund can seek to destroy, if possible, and it becomes possible when the mad priest dies. Edmund takes his place in the dead man's sack and is hurled into the sea. He cuts his way out and swims to a nearby island. A ship picks him up, and Edmund is now in the hands of smugglers who take him to an island called Monte Cristo, which, as it happens, is an island that the mad priest has told him about, where there is a great hidden treasure. Edmund contrives to retrieve the treasure without being seen by anyone, and he returns. This is where things start to get good. Now he is rich and well-mannered after all of the training from the mad priest back in prison, and he can call himself the Count of Monte Cristo. He also knows who he needs to pay back, and one of those men has even married his love, his fiancée, whom he was about to marry when he was thrown in prison. The story of him taking these three men down one by one is so good. It's so much fun. It's a book I loved, truly loved as a kid, but it still appeals to me today. I have not really outgrown it. I wish I had enemies and a fortune so I could destroy those enemies. As I have neither, I will just have to live through Edmond Dantes. Okay, so... How did this man, Alexander Dumas, find the energy for all this? Where did this tireless appetite for adventure and excitement and bravery and justice and ambition come from? And it's here, I think, that we have to look to his father. The father who died when Dumas was four, of course, but whose friends must have filled young Alexander with stories of his father's accomplishments. Let's start at the beginning years before Alexander was born, Thomas Alexander, let's just call him Thomas to make things easier. Thomas was born in what we now know as Haiti. It was a French colony then, and Thomas's father was a white French nobleman, and his mother was an enslaved woman of African descent. Actually, let's back up a little bit. Thomas's father, Alexander's grandfather, was named Antoine, He was the son of an aristocrat who had fallen on some hard times. He was the son of a marquis, but the wealth in the family was disappearing. So Antoine and his brothers, who were in the military, and his younger brother Charles, was posted in the Caribbean in a French colony that was making money hand over fist, thanks to sugarcane plantations and African slave labor. Charles left the military to take over the estate of his wife, a local French Creole widow, which included her sugar fields. Antoine, Alexander's grandfather, left the army too and came to work with them. He bought some slaves and helped maintain the estate for about 10 years until Charles and Antoine got into a violent disagreement. Antoine left, taking three slaves with him, and didn't see Charles again for 30 years. Now, Antoine, Alexander the writer's grandfather, bought a slave named Marie Sassette and took her as a concubine. She gave birth to Thomas, Alexander's father. The boy was half black. In other words, Antoine started calling himself by a different last name and worked as a coffee and cacao planter. When their parents died, Charles went back to Normandy to claim the family title of Marquis and the family chateau. This was during the Seven Years' War. Charles had a problem. The British were blockading French ships, making it hard for him to sell his sugar. 
It turned him into a smuggler, and he used a wharf on an island in neutral territory to try to get his trading done out of the reach of the British blockade. That island was part of what we now call the Dominican Republic. Back then, it was called, you guessed it, Monte Cristo. There was a third brother, too, Louis. He was notorious for selling defective weapons to the French military, which landed him in jail. So those are the three brothers. Charles, the rich sugar planter who smuggles his booty into the island of Monte Cristo and returns to France to become a marquis. Louis, the schemer who goes to jail. And Antoine, the military man who buys a slave and takes her as his concubine. This is Alexander's great-uncle, great-uncle, and grandfather. You can see where these adventure novels are not so far-fetched. Thomas, the half-black son of Antoine, was taken to France to be educated. In 1776, when he was 14 years old, his father sold him into slavery, which isn't exactly what it sounds like. It was kind of a ruse, so the boy could be taken legally to France, and also... The sale served as sort of a temporary loan so Antoine could pay for his passage to France. When they arrived in France, Antoine repurchased Thomas and freed him. They now moved to the old family estate. Thomas was given the education of a nobleman, including swordsmanship, and lived a life of leisure. His father seems to have been somewhat doting, though he complained in letters how much Thomas was costing him. He joined the military, Thomas did, and began calling himself Dumas, mostly because he couldn't enlist as an officer, and his father didn't want their name to be associated with a lower-ranked military member. He faced some discrimination as well. Commissioned officers required four generations of nobility on their father's side in order to qualify. Thomas had that, but it didn't matter. Mixed-race kids were essentially disqualified. But Thomas was capable and well-trained, and he was tall and handsome and dashing. He was brave, and he had a chip on his shoulder. And France was about to be going through a period of great upheaval, when people of talent could rise because opportunities made it possible. Take, for example, the exam- Take for example, another French soldier of uncertain birth, the Corsican artillery commander Napoleon Bonaparte, who was seven years younger than Thomas. But we're jumping ahead a bit. Remember that Thomas came to France at age 14. At 24, he joined the military as a private. And by 31, he was commanding 53,000 troops as the general-in-chief of the French Army of the Alps. In between, there had been a revolution. And now the French, having won in the Alps, were able to launch an Italian campaign against the Austrian Empire. The Austrian troops called him Schwarzertufel, or Black Devil. And Napoleon had another nickname for him, the Horatius Cockles of the Tyrol, after a hero who had saved ancient Rome. Thomas was the commander of French cavalry forces on an attempt to conquer Egypt, which failed. On the way from Alexandria to Cairo, he got into an argument with Supreme Commander Napoleon Bonaparte, and he ended up leaving Egypt on what historians call an unsound vessel, which wrecked in Italy in the kingdom of Naples, where Thomas was taken prisoner and thrown into a dungeon. He was there for about two years before he was finally released. When he returned to France, had a son with his wife, his son Alexander, the hero of our episode, and then died in 1806. Thomas and Napoleon had never gotten along, and it's hard not to think that Napoleon, suffering from the complex that bears his name today, had a kind of jealousy of Dumas. 
of Thomas Dumas. Dumas was called fearless and irreproachable, a more or less self-made man who was described in official records as, quote, six feet tall with frizzy black hair and eyebrows, oval face, and brown skin, end quote. Another contemporary description was that he was, quote, one of the handsomest men you could ever meet, with hair that recalled the curls of the Greeks and Romans, end quote. He and Napoleon first clashed in Italy, as Napoleon allowed his troops to take whatever they wanted from the locals as they passed through the country, and Dumas resisted on honorable grounds, on principle. After that, Napoleon took some petty actions against him, like leaving him out of a battle report that he wrote back to, a direct, to the directory. He was given a command, Thomas was given a command beneath his rank, even though his own soldiers wrote a petition attesting to his valor. But it was on the Egyptian campaign that he and Napoleon clashed the most, and Thomas seems to have met with some other generals who were also critical of Napoleon's strategies. Napoleon heard about this and considered having Thomas shot for sedition. Instead, he agreed to let Thomas sail back to France on that ill-fated voyage. Prison was not kind to Thomas. He came out of it a broken man, deaf in one ear, partially paralyzed, almost blind in one eye. He believed that he was being poisoned, though he was aided in secret by a local pro-French organization, which brought him medicine when he was in jail. By the time he got out, his old rival Napoleon had seized power of France. Dumas had been generous to him at times. During one campaign, he had uncovered a great storehouse of gold and jewels hidden under a house. He turned it over to Napoleon. But now that he was out of prison, sick and infirm, a casualty of war and politics, Napoleon turned cold. Thomas appealed to him for back pay or a job in the military, but it was not to be. And when he died, he was impoverished. His wife not even afforded the customary widow's pension. She was bitter. And she and young Alexander continued to blame Napoleon and his jealousy, what they called his, quote, implacable hatred, end quote, for their poverty. She took a job in a shop selling tobacco. Alexander couldn't even afford to go to school and had to go off to Paris to prevail upon his connections to find his way in the world. The example of his dashing father, the victim of several injustices, was no doubt on his mind. His father Thomas must have had a hard time stomaching the seizing of power by Napoleon. He had been an avid Republican himself, especially after the New Republic abolished slavery in 1794. As he told the troops then under his command in the Alps, quote, Your comrade, a soldier and general-in-chief, was born in a climate and among men for whom liberty also had charms, and who fought for it first. Sincere lover of liberty and equality, convinced that all free men are equals, he will be proud to march out before you, to aid you in your efforts, and the coalition of tyrants will learn that they are loathed equally by men of all colors. End quote. Sometimes you wonder where a man like Alexander Dumas gets the inspiration to take a plot outline, grab hold of it, infuse it with his talent, and turn it into something like a work of genius. Where does he get the fire to write so well with such energy about heroes, men who are the victims of great injustices, but whose honor and dignity and bravery allow them to rise above the petty machinations of lesser men? Sometimes you wonder about it, and sometimes it's perfectly apparent, and you don't need to wonder 
at all. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for the this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to the Black Count and to Alexander Dumas. We didn't even talk about his son, who also became a successful playwright, but that's okay. He didn't write The Three Musketeers or The County Monte Cristo, after all. My thanks also to Drew in France and Caroline on her farm in Brazil. Man, oh man, these emails are good. They sustain me. Oh, and Lady Macbeth, who swung by on a little madcap adventure of her own. All for one and one for all, people. Let's stay safe. Let's stay supportive of each other. Let's be good and let's be as heroic and dashing in the pursuit of justice as D'Artagnan, the Three Musketeers, Edmond Dantes, and our true heroes today. The man who went from being a slave to being a great general and the son he left behind, who gave us some of the most enduring characters in the world. The kind of literature that makes you want to jump from your chair jump out the window and go running down the street, searching for wrongs to right, villains to smite, slights to avenge, and victims to help. The world is a better place with heroes like that, and it's a better place when all of us average people do what we can to be heroes, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 